Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. In this contributor episode, Bill talks about design contests, Jonathan talks about mini games, and Bez talks about how games are like fried chicken. But first, an update on the design contest. Submission closed on April 21st. We ended up with 107 games from 120 different designers. We have 198 judges signed up so far, but we can always use more if you're interested in helping out. Round 1 judging began a week ago on April 24th, and we already have over 600 judge forms submitted. That's more than half of what we had for all of Round 1 last year, and we still have almost two months left of judging. You can go to theboardgameworkshop.com to see live stats in the contest, sign up to be a judge, and join the Discord, where some designers have posted their contest videos. Now, on to the show. Welcome, everybody, to the Board Game Sandbox. I'm your host, as always, Bill Lassick, designer of the board game Koi and uh, owner of Wandering Hearth Games out of central New Jersey. We took a, a brief hiatus last month, but we are back and ready to, uh, to spend some learnings with you guys uh, to discuss tips and tricks uh, on ways of making your board games as amazing as possible. Um, Based on the time of year, I think one topic that's really worth covering is board game contests. Uh, there's several going around right now, uh, and there's going to be more popping up as the year continues. Uh, right now, actually, the contest for this channel, Board Game Workshop, is live, um, although submissions have ended. Um, there's the Board Game Design Lab uh, Board Game Design Contest, which actually is open for more submissions, uh, gamecrafter.com constantly has contests running uh, and there's a number of other ones you're going to see popping up like SaltCon and Cardboard Edison which are both great contests as well as many 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 more um, just search Facebook Google Board Game Geek and you'll come across a lot of them um, why are they important why she enter them um, uh, some offer cash prizes or point prizes many don't so uh, why why should you consider them there's a couple reasons, and hopefully after listening to this podcast, uh, you'll strongly consider, uh, if you haven't already, entering some of these contests, because I think it will really help get your games uh, uh, further developed and closer to the finish line. So, first and foremost, uh, you're going to notice many of these contests uh, don't offer money, don't offer prizes. Um, it's not actually that important. Uh, the most beneficial thing that you're going to get out of these contests is feedback and exposure. So the people that are going to be the judges in our contests that we enter, uh, they're our peers. They are respected industry professionals, be it um, media personalities, publishers, designers, um, reviewers. Uh, these are the people that are um, active in our community as well as um, respected members and uh, helpers within our community. They're going to see your game as pitched, whether uh, the submission entry is a sell sheet, a written spiel, a intro video, a how to play video, depending on the contest, depends on what they look for for round one submissions. Uh, but all of these individuals that are gonna look at your game um, at whatever the submission level is, are going to be reviewing it as such, uh, especially since many of us are designers that sell our games um, or uh, publishers that are looking to put things on Kickstarter. Uh, think of these people as your target audiences, whether your target audience is a publisher, 
trying to pick up a game uh, or your Kickstarter crowd that you're going to be launching this game to. They're going to hear your, let's say it's an elevator pitch, um, two-minute spiel, like within the board game workshop contest. You say, hey, this is what's really cool about my game. Uh, They're going to listen to that spiel for two minutes and then decide, do they want to hear more? And they're going to review the game favorably, or do they not want to hear more? And they're going to review it as such. But in addition to that, there's a lot of judges that will give you critical and value-added feedback that say why they voted. I wanted to see more. Why they voted, they didn't want to see more. Um, This is the same thought process that's going to come across every single person that sees your game, obviously from different perspectives, but the concept is the same. Uh, By getting the feedback from people that see your game in its current level of development, you're going to understand how they're perceiving your game, um, how they perceive you pitching your game, and uh, what's making your game uh, catch their attention or where you can improve your game or your pitch uh, to get that attention. Uh, So that is absolutely, absolutely valuable, much more valuable than a silly cash prize or some kind of online currency, et cetera. Um, The feedback is absolutely critical and valuable. Uh, And to that uh, feedback, another side bonus is a lot of times judges in these contests happen to also be publishers or have contacts with publishers. Uh, We are a very small uh, yet awesome community. And um, by getting your game into these contests and seen out in the world, uh, it is not unheard of, although it's not common, but it's not unheard of that by submitting your game into a contest, you might come out of that contest uh, either with a contract or, you know, at least in discussions with a publisher or a potential contract. Um, and that, I mean, that happens even if you don't win. Uh, just all you need is one judge uh, that either has a connection or is a publisher that takes an interest in your game, thinks it has something special. And man, right there, you have made your magic connection. And hopefully uh, you can use that to leverage a finished product that uh, I can play as well as many others. So, uh, side bonus, you actually can indirectly pitch to publishers as a result of a contest, which is a huge benefit. Um, also, uh, I mentioned you're going to get exposure. More people are going to see your game, so they're going to recognize it. Uh, if it goes on Kickstarter, they may have already seen it. Now they feel some more of a connection to it. Now, I have heard uh, some people... Um, uh, not a lot, but it has come up. People are concerned about entering contests because of that exposure. What if uh, the wrong person sees my game and my idea gets stolen? Oh, just like when it comes down to playtesting, that level of fear is pretty silly. Um, unless you have an IP that you uh, need to protect because of legal uh, reasons that the IP is, uh, is stealing on you, uh, there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't share your game as much as possible and as often as possible, including in contests. Um, we tend to be a very tight-knit and supportive community. Uh, people, by and large, 99.99% of the people in our industry don't care a whit about stealing your idea, um, but they do care about helping you make your idea as good as possible because they like to play great games and they want to see your game become great so they can play it. Um, 
And if someone, in the very, very rare case, tried to steal your idea, hey, we know who the judges are in these contests, so it's very easy to see where they got the idea from. Um, and uh, the industry would turn on them very, very fast. Uh, they would lose infinitely more um, in their attempt to take your idea uh, than they would ever gain from the selling of said idea. So it's just, it's not going to happen. Um, with incredibly rare, incredibly rare exception. Um, so another reason I've heard uh, people maybe not think uh, of entering a contest or are afraid is they may not be graphic designers or they may not be really good videographers. Well, I got a really cool secret for you guys. That doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> the contest is about your game, not about your video editing skills. Uh, the judges are far less interested in how well you can edit a video as much as they are really interested in how much passion and excitement do you have for your game. They don't care about your video backdrop as much as the uniqueness of your game. Um, they don't care if your script is perfectly laid out as much as they care is your concept, your idea is clear, concise, easy to understand. Do they stand out? So don't worry if your video is not high quality or not even edited, just shot as a one shot. Um, don't worry if you stutter or forget words. Um, just worry if you can get your concept across. Um, show your passion. Uh, show the judges uh, what makes your game special and why you believe in it and why people should play it. And that can carry you all the way through to a contest win. Um, the rest of the stuff, editing skills, they, they can come in time if you even want to develop them. Uh, there's tutorials and videos online, um, countless on YouTube, and Google, etc., cetera, um, that can help you make things better. But don't worry about spending time on that as much as spend time making sure your game is great and that you can help in a short period of time convey why it is. And that is what matters in a contest. So don't worry about submitting things in a perfect fashion. Just submit them and then get the feedback. Uh, that is what really, really matters. And what's really going to help you the most. Um, now, the final thing I do want to touch on, and this is... Uh, a uh, side benefit from contests, uh, but I think it really does help us in our industry. A lot of us are creative types, obviously, because we are making games. Uh, we don't necessarily have to unless it's our day job. And even then, uh, creative types aren't always the best to hold to a schedule. We work when the muse hits us often. Um, that means... Sometimes you may work feverishly on a game, making progress each week, which is always the ideal. Uh, but sometimes it may be a couple weeks or months in between inspirations and adjustments. Contests don't play that way. Uh, contests have dates and submittal deadlines and guidelines that we have to follow if we want to participate in them. So it's a means of getting a target uh, deadline for certain tasks onto our calendars that we have to abide by as a means of participating in that contest. Um, uh, the proverbial kick in the tush, as it were. So um, it may seem like that's not a big deal, but for a lot of people who uh, 
uh, while in project procrastination and uh, just take our times with things. Uh, do you really think that um, uh, having a thing on the calendar will help? That's It's helped me. And I think it will definitely help, uh, maybe not everybody, but some of you will definitely benefit from it. Just knowing I have to have my video in by May 17th. Um, definitely, definitely will be a good driver for you. So uh, that's it for this week's episode. I uh, would love to hear from you uh, what you think of this podcast. Um, any tips you would like me to either uh, improve upon or topics you'd like me to focus on. Uh, I am easily searchable on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Bill Lasek. That's L-A-S-E-K. I also can be emailed at wanderingheartgames at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you and uh, look forward to seeing your games and hope this helped. Have a great month, guys. See you next time. Bye. Hey, I'm Jonathan Weaver, um, also known as Game Weaver Games, and I'm bringing you this contribution session um, all about mini games. If that sound has anything to do with you, it is always an encouraging thing for me to hear because I loved playing Mario Party 1, 2, and 3. And usually, the hours that I spent playing the actual Mario Party game of walking around the rule and move board, attempting to get a star and buy it, weren't actually that fun. (laughs) But, ultimately, I think people bought and played Mario Party for all of the mini-games that happened at the end of each round of that big roll and move board. As I've been reflecting on my designs recently, um, over the last three years, I've realized that players, including myself, really enjoy mini-games even when they're baked into the larger game goal or objective. I think this is obvious in some design sense when you talk about short-term versus long-term goals or short-term objectives versus long-term objectives within the design, but I kind of want to go at it with a different angle than just achieving an objective. I want to talk about some scenarios where the minigame is much more about having fun than necessarily getting you that much closer to the end goal, although it might have the byproduct of that. So going with the Mario Party reference, think of a time when you loved a sp- particular minigame, whether you won or lost for the action that you got to do in it. The one that comes to mind for me is I spent countless hours on Mario Party 3 playing aces in the sky in the little mini game room once you unlock it because it was just so fun to be dogfighting in an enclosed space you had that exclamation point blinking above you as a bullet bill from some other player comes at you and you try to lose it in the uh, whirlwind that was the borders some of those things were just so fun even though i didn't win that often and yes in the normal game of roll and move i would gain some coins if i won and those coins obviously help you buy a star if you make it to the star space but most of the fun for me was actually just playing the game and then choosing a particular tactic that i liked whether it was to bullet bill the whole time even though they have a long charge up or to shoot only the little pellets hoping to get somebody in a true dog fight or just to evade as long as possible all in all the actual mini game was worth playing whether i won or lost and whether it gave me coins or not 
So, in thinking about that Mario Party minigame experience, I've been contemplating that within my own games. And I think this is what I believe about minigames within game design. Allowing players to have a minigame experience within the larger game allows them a bite-sized chunk that they can manipulate and explore without having to fear the massive three-course meal that the large game provides. Specifically, this helps new players become acclimated to your game or even gamers who aren't used to your style of game. We all know those times when you sit down and maybe you're uh, an Ameritrash player and you're like sitting down at a Euro game and you just go, I'm not going to win this. Or you've played plenty of deck builders, but now all of a sudden you're doing worker placement with resource management and it's just not your normal. Or you're just brand new to a certain depth of game. Like when I first sat down to Twilight Imperium or, or Terra Mystica, I was overwhelmed. And so these th- this three-course meal that the large game is saying, here's how you win, and it's so um, difficult for you to think about what strategies would get there or things like that. Um, it's nice to have a mini game. It's a bite-sized chunk. So, I want to give you two clear examples from um, games that I have designed, and then I'll give you some that I think are published games that fit um, this this um, idea. When I first designed my game, Genghis Rising Khan, which is a game for two to four players who are attempting to unify Mongolia and become Genghis Khan, I knew I wanted an action selection system and resource management to be the main mechanics to recruit the specific tribes, which is the main objective. So action selection and resource management. <clears throat> what I found that was more astonishing or, or, or fun for players as they tried to understand the overarching game objective was how the resource system that I'd put into the game worked. Basically, to give you an understanding of it, it was when a player takes an action to gain a resource, it begins a chain of adding resources to other resource boards, incentivizing other players or that player to gain more resources from a different action. So if you go and you send some troops out to cut down wood, it actually puts um, herd a herd token on another resource board. And if you go and get herds, it will add food to a food resource board. And so that chain reaction was very interactive and I saw players really enjoyed just the aspect of being able to incentivize their own action since they got two actions on their turn they would take one action and it would cause something good to happen elsewhere and then they would go ahead and take that second action getting the extra bonus that they caused themselves um, what's funny about this is that second action of grabbing the extra herds or the extra food wasn't always that strategic but it was a mini game that people really enjoyed the app, the opportunity to incentivize their second action. So they loved the idea that they just got four food because of other players putting them on that board and then them adding a second one. And, and it was this, what? Oh, man, you got four food from that? There was this moment at the table. And it was this, I won the mini game. I won uh, the resource management game. Um, now, it wouldn't have worked if any of the resources were purely fluff and had, like, no currency within the game, obviously. If, if food was never used for anything or herds were never used for anything, then obviously maybe that wouldn't work as a minigame. Just like the minigames in Mario Party gave you coins, which you did want really badly to be able to buy a star, especially if you're within a few spaces of the star space. So, you do have to make sure that it is not just a side game that doesn't have any weight to your game. But, it doesn't always necessarily mean it has to have the most currency or the most actionable outcome. Sometimes it can just be for fun. 
Another game that um, I feel like I um, saw a mini game building block rise out of it, but I did it a little more with purpose after watching Genghis Rising Khan, is a game I am. Um, it's called currently Chaos Runes. It's a game in which um, players are using spell cubes as wizards to move minions around these spinning rune-stamped dials. So there's these three dials that pivot on a um, on a board, and you run around these dials and pick up magical gems that are um, kind of being produced on those runes. Um, the ba- the main objective of the game was to have the most power at the end of the game. And so the gems all have different power. One of them's worth five, one of them is worth three. There are two that are worth two. And when I just made the game as acquiring gems, which is in its base state, when I first made it, you just go and grab as many gems as you can and try to beat other players to, to getting those gems. It was just a game about of power grabbing and point counting. You kind of looked around every turn that you went and said, oh, he has more gems than me power-wise. I should make sure to take the gems from him. And it was just a point counting system. You know, oh, I'm at 17, he's at 22. And um, it, it was fun, but it was mostly math. Once I added a gem book, which was this kind of map of places that when you gained a gem, you would place the gem into your gem book in a particular order, um, this is where the mini game came in. That gem book, that little map of locations for your gems to be placed, causes you to think about what you're doing and maximize your gem book. Because at, at a certain point on that map, on that book, when you place a gem, you would gain a spell, but you would only gain the spells that you have gems adjacent to one another. So the mini game of grabbing up that water gem before the next guy so that you could put it in the right place became a mini game to focus on rather than do I have the most power and can I win right now? Now there are some players that wouldn't care about this mini game. They just go for the most powerful gems and potentially they may win and they might have fun in their own way without the mini game. While players who can't quite understand what exactly is the best strategy for winning have a bite-sized chunk they can understand, which is to get the next spell, and that's fun. And sometimes it's actually better, even if there's a five-power gem out there, but really you need the two-power gem to get a spell that's going to help you have higher utility later in the game. So these are two examples of mini-games and how they help you know, gamers who are new to that particular type of game or just gamers who are learning your game for the first time or learning games for the first time, they help them have a bite-sized chunk to go after. Another, I'm sure, adjacent topic would be variable player powers and how they automatically give you a strategy to begin with. But I don't necessarily think of mini games as being a, um, a given strategy for you to begin with, um, but more of a, a fun, interactive explore, exploration spot in the game that allows the player to explore it and manipulate it and not be necessarily um, narrowly focused on one particular end like a variable player power might be. So that's my idea of mini games as uh, mini games as building blocks um, inside of your larger objective being a way to keep players attention and engagement even when they don't understand what the best path forward is. If players can enjoy just one aspect of your game they're more than likely to play it again then they can actually attempt to understand how to win the whole game out of that chunk. So I promised I would share some published games uh, that also use this minigame building block from my perspective. I can only think of two that were very, very clear, so I wanted to just bring these up. I'm sure that if I had tons and tons of time just to uh, think and look and all that, I could find more. But 
And two that I thought of right off the bat were The Dead of Winter. Um, it's the zombie game where you are cooperatively playing together um, against the zombies outside, and it's it's in the freezing winter. Um, the personal objectives of you need gas and medicine and um, this book or this item, they can... Um, instantly kind of attempt to give you a, uh, a desire, which is to jump around those different locations on the board and try to get the items that are listed on the, um, on the, the buildings. And so that gives you this mini game of, I really need gas. And the gas station is probably my best bet to pick a card from that deck and actually get what I need. And that, that's a mini game. It's not always that helpful for you to go after your personal objective. Um, nor is it very helpful actually for you to swap between buildings when you're not getting what you need because you could actually get frostbite or get bitten. But it's really fun. It's really fun to go to the location and be hoping for something and and then pull the um, card off the top of the deck. And so it may not even be that helpful in the survival sense. I do know that it's technically an end-game objective for you to have completed your personal objective and everyone survive, but I still think that most of the time people are going after their personal objective is kind of a mini-game chunk experience and they don't really think about the overall survival yet. Um, as for the castles, uh, the other one I think of is Castles of Mad King Ludwig. Um, this is a, a real sense that in this game, um, when you're drafting those tiles, when well, not drafting, you're actually buying them from a market, um, you're, you know what's going to give you the most points based on some different scoring, um, in-game scoring things, as well as which rooms do you close off and that kind of stuff. But... You also look at the tiles, and they have flavor, and they have theme to them. So there's a, a model train room, and there's a torture chamber, and there's a mold room. And sometimes you just look at your castle, and you're like, that's what I need. I need a mold room. Or, or I just really want to make sure that my, uh, my you know, kitchen has the buttery right next to it, even if that actually isn't the best um, spatial room. It isn't maybe the best points-related room. But you can um, go ahead and buy those rooms that are fun, and they go with your castle vibe, and they just make you laugh. And there's this mini game there that says, I'm going to build this kind of castle. Well, that kind of castle may not be a winning castle, but you don't really care because you're just trying to enjoy the part of the game that you get the most. I remember enjoying thinking about which rooms I wanted off what other rooms. And so these are just little mini games within the larger game that help your players stay engaged. Um, I hope that this is really helpful. It's been really helpful for me to think about in my design process and that um, you can think of your own games in how many mini games do I have in here and obviously they need to connect. They can't be completely separate from the larger game otherwise they'll feel disconnected and players will recognize that. But if they are fun and enjoyable in their own sense, that can keep engagement high. And so sometimes, even though most of us as designers are attempting to um, help people behave a particular way, maybe watch your players and see if there's ways in which they behave. Maybe not in the perfectly strategic way that you were hoping or that you're thinking would be best, but it might be really fun. And if you can keep that as a part of the game and it doesn't slow things down or doesn't break the in-game objective and that there really still is a winner and they're not like going against the spirit of the game and all that jazz, then I really think you should try to go for that. Try to try to bring that forward.
Anyway, that's been my thoughts for the day. Um, mini games all the way. If you get a chance, make sure you play some Mario Party. It's a blast. Um, but yeah, if you want to find me um, on um, the internet, I am at J underscore Weaves, W-E-A-V-E-S. And, um, or you can email me at gweavergames at gmail.com. And I'd love to hear from you about this mini game topic. And good luck designing. Hello, I am Bez, and I would like to talk to you and tell you about how a game, a board game, is exactly like fried chicken. I mean, you go off and you might think, oh yes, all fried chicken is exactly the same. But you know, sometimes you've got batter that's pretty soft and it's almost non-existent. Sometimes... You bite inside and the chicken's, you know, sweet and juicy. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's the batter's got a bit of a pepper taste. Sometimes there's a barbecue mix going on or maybe even a bit of a Cajun seasoning. It could be anything. And whilst there is a lot of the same thing going on, you know, everyone can put their own spin on it. And... Of course, we all know that games aren't just Monopoly, but even more than that, games aren't just about strategic tests of mental aptitude. Games can be about lying to each other, about uncovering our emotions, or about contortion, or about reaching into socks. Or games can be about eating things, like Jen Sandercock's games, which are even more like fried chicken. And so you start to uncover it and you realise, hey, there's a bit more that goes on here. But maybe you sometimes need to start thinking about the source. Maybe with a board game, you need to think about, okay, where did this come from? Where, what were the inspirations? How closely was it copied? Is it just a case of a company doing exactly the same thing, putting it out in a more better marketed venue to be more of a mass market offering? Or is it someone really bringing something new to the table? And maybe you think about, is it ethical? Is this ethical that people are copying this game so wholeheartedly and just making it adulterated? Is it ethical that chickens are being treated this way in their battery farms? And I'm not telling you what to do, but that's for you to make the decision. And of course, both things are seen as pretty frivolous, childish, meaningless, but they can be so nourishing in the right context. Sometimes at the end of the day, you're a bit tired, and maybe a bit of fried chicken, it perks you up. You cuddle down, you sit in your couch, maybe you watch half an hour of a TV show, and you enjoy the fried chicken, and that fulfills you. Maybe you're fulfilled by sitting and cuddling and having a game going on where you're moving pieces and that is your conversation because, hey, you've already talked about things or maybe you just don't feel like conversation with words. Instead, you want to have a conversation through the medium of actions and decisions or action selection and denial, whatever. And so these things, they can be treated in a ridiculously, hey, 
it's just frivolous and pointless, but they can be so meaningful in a bigger landscape. And they are easy to get. I mean, I could walk down a couple of minutes and get some fried chicken. I could go on to Amazon and buy a board game. I mean, both of these are things that you need to think about. Again, should I buy from Amazon? Is it ethical? Is battery farming ethical? It's all a decision for you. And these things can be super cheap. I could go and buy fried chicken for one pound. I could go and buy three pieces or I could go to somewhere else and maybe they offer me four pieces of fried chicken for one pound twenty. One place, I got eight pieces of fried chicken for two pounds. Super cheap. Just driving it down. And that wasn't even terribly bad. But maybe, you know, you spend a bit more extra. Maybe even, you know, buy some proper meat yourself, buy some, you know, proper breadcrumbs, put it on, it's always going to be better, go to a nice place, and by even within that cheap, and you've got cheap and cheerful and cheap and nasty, and it's the same with board games, sometimes you've got a cheap board game, that's, wow, that's just really good value, I mean, my own Yogi, for example, it's £10 RRP, and I like to think that's really good value, it's cheap and cheerful, but then you've got other things that are maybe a bit cheap and nasty, where I'm not going to name names, but sometimes you have a game that you think, yeah, this is like... Okay, it's been put into the bargain basement and it's £2, but yeah, I bought it and it was really terrible. And the only reason that I'm ever going to, yeah, use this is for some other thing. I mean, yeah, and it can be super cheap, but is that right? Is it right that um, we are driving down the costs or should we really pay a bit more extra? Should we really go for those fancier breadcrumbs? Should we start thinking about how these chickens are being treated? Should we pay a bit extra for nicer artwork and nicer boxes and nicer components? It's a bit of extra money for us and it's a bit of extra money for the people who are working or to ensure good conditions. And... Both things can be addictive. I mean, I've started eating a lot of fried chicken recently, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I'm talking maybe every couple of nights, bits of fried chicken, and games. You might really get into games. Is it okay? That's a question for you. Is fried chicken every two or three days okay? Well, if I'm only buying three or four wings, I think maybe it is. If it's buying, is playing games pretty much every day an okay thing to do? Well, I think it is. But if I were to start playing Idle Clicker or um, some other game where you just click things and then it, it's all about engaging you in a very vacuous um, Skinner box kind of way, then maybe that's not okay. Maybe I should be taking a look back at my life and trying to engage with other things more meaningfully. And sometimes it's asking, yes, I'm happy to spend a lot of time doing this, but is that right? What am I getting from it? Have I gorged myself on food? Am I just stuffing my face? Am I actually eating vegetables? Am I you know, okay in my life? Am I interacting not just with 
the digital game, but with board games with the other people? Am I going to... Am I able to interact with people not just through the medium of board games, but also sometimes through conversation? Because that's the thing. I mean, sometimes you might start to rely too much upon a board game, and that's your only means of social interaction, which, you know, if it's good to kind of get out there, and if you're only playing solo games, maybe, and you're just being a bit of a hermit, then maybe go off and play some, you know, multiplayer games. And if you're only playing multiplayer games where you're, you know, partying and you're playing party games, maybe play a bit of a strategic game. And if you're only playing strategic games, maybe try a party game. Try to diversify, expand your horizons. Don't just eat chicken all the time. Do not do that. And again, there is so much depth to uncover. You can reach into a board game and play it over and over. And unless the game is purely a test of skill, if there is any I mean, reaching into a sock, finding the correct object. Even there, there might be strategies that you uncover. There might be tactile experiences that you uncover on future playthroughs of the game. You might uncover, if you have got any strategy going on in the game, it's likely that you will find that you understand the ramifications of these decisions better and better as time goes on. Maybe you will understand the nuances of the taste of the chicken and how this one is slightly juicier, how this one is slightly crisper, how this one is slightly more peppery, whatever. And of course, these have increasing prevalence. I mean, I'm starting to see, maybe it's just me, but I'm starting to see around London a lot more crispy fried chicken places. I'm also seeing some more board game cafes popping up. I mean, there's probably more fried chicken places than there are board game cafes. So, but, you know, it's just a matter of scale rather than quality. Both seem to be growing. And at the same time, both fried chicken and board games have things that can seriously go wrong. I mean, I have bought fried chicken and bitten into it, and it's been red and bloody inside. And that's, whoa, that's not good. I mean, I'm probably not going to get salmonella, and I'm not going to lie, I actually finished that one. But, you know, there is the danger. And so, you know, don't be doing that. And if I bite into your fried chicken and it, it's just been under the heat lamp for the entire day, and all the moisture has drained away from it, you know... That's not enjoyable at all. And that's just a basic thing that's gone wrong. And it's sad that there... I mean, 90% of fried chicken is fine, but these tiny places that, you know, they offer you the terrible, atrocious fried chicken, they remind me of buying a board game. And sometimes you believe... Come on, surely the designer must have ensured that this game actually comes to an end. Surely the designer hasn't published a game that could literally carry on for, you know, hours when the box says 15 minutes on its front. But sure enough, sometimes the publisher does make this massive oversight. Sometimes I have seen a board game where on the... front of the box, 
the graphics were clearly intended for a different size of box. I mean, what's going on with that? I guess they clearly didn't get any physical proofs, but did they not even get any digital proofs? Did the publisher not even bother to understand what was going on? And then it looked like they were having low-res JPEGs or something. I mean, I don't know what's going on, but there's some clear malarkey. This was for an old um, publisher who's now happily, you know, no longer with us. I mean, darn you know, disbanded and no longer working in the industry. But these kinds of things do happen. I mean, people do have games that where the artwork is printed using low-quality JPEGs, believe it or not. And But don't hold yourself just to not be terrible. Hold yourself up to a higher standard. Hold yourself to be really good. I mean, don't just try to have a game that actually lasts within a roughly expected amount of time. I mean, plus minus, if your game length is doubling in terms of its maximum compared to its minimum time, I would say that's completely fine. If it's plus like 10 minutes, that's completely fine. So if you've got like 3 to 13 minutes, fine. If it's 30 to 60 minutes, fine. If it's a game where it's 15 minutes, but sometimes it lasts two or three hours, for me, that's a massive issue. For other people, it's less of an issue. But these are kinds of things that you need to think about. And don't just assume it will not happen to you. Because sometimes you have to go through all the logistics. Sometimes you have to go through all the maths. Work out what if people did this? What if that bit happened in the process? What if that thing happened? And ensure that even with the worst dice rolls, I made a roll and write, and it's easy to say, okay, well, maybe if you can't go anywhere, you can't go anywhere, you miss a turn. Well, what if people just roll badly a million times in a row? I mean, it's incredibly unlikely to happen, but it could happen. And then if you start having elements to kind of curtail the game to make sure that it ends in a timely manner, maybe your game, you... If someone wants, instead of doing their turn, instead of placing a thing, if they roll badly, well, they're forced to, but either way, they can place a mark in the river. And five marks in the river means the game's over. Something as simple as that. And maybe that leads to new, you know, better improvements. And think about every aspect. How can this be improved? Can we throw in some new spice? Can we throw in something to delight people? What are we trying to achieve? Are we trying to make the spiciest chicken? Are we trying to make some crispy chicken? Are we trying to make some juicy chicken? What are we prioritizing? Think about your priority, but think about your systems and make sure that you don't mess up. Because... You want to hold yourself up to a higher standard than all those places that when they sell fried chicken, let's be honest, they're just going after the cheapest possible thing that they can offer. And that's fair enough. That's their market. But games are a luxury market. So even though games are exactly like fried chicken, maybe hold yourself to slightly higher standard is what I'm saying. But even though they are exactly the same, clearly. But... And so that's it. I hope you agree with me. And I guess I've been Bez and I've been talking about board games and how board game. And next week I will talk to you about something else. 
at some point in the future, which is not fried chicken, but is exactly fried chicken, because just exactly like fried chicken, it is exactly like a board game. That's all for this episode. The Board Game Workshop is a member of the Indie Game Report. Check out their reviews and interviews at theindiegamereport.com. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, especially our inventor-level supporters, Chris Turner, Vegan Al, Brad Bachelor, and Roscoe Shop. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash theboardgameworkshop. You can follow the show on Twitter at TheBGWorkshop and on Facebook at TheBoardGameWorkshop and join the show's Discord channel to discuss episodes. You can get links to all of these and the show notes for all episodes at theboardgameworkshop.com. Thanks for listening.